along. Turn in your Bibles with me, Genesis chapter 8. That's where we're going to start. Popular question often put to Christians these days. Maybe you've been asked it. Maybe you've even asked it yourself at some point. Maybe you've wrestled with it. Maybe you're wrestling with it even today. The question is this, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why is there evil in this world? It's a pretty good one. That's a, that's a big question. If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why is there cancer? Why is there war? Why is there starvation? Why are there wicked people? It's a question a lot of Christians struggle to answer, a question a lot of atheists would use as that kind of gotcha moment. One of the best parts of my job was earlier this week, as I already told you, just getting to sit down with people and hear what God is doing in their lives and, and be a part of that and, and, and turning to Scripture. Um, I had that opportunity earlier this week. Just this beautiful conversation. At one point, as we were walking through the book of Romans, just laying out the gospel, a fellow I was talking with just unraveled that question in, in a beautiful way. He had no idea, I don't think, that he was doing it, but he unraveled that question. As we walked through Romans chapter 3, looking at the, the sinful... Boy, we're... Uh, that was... Oh, third time's a charm. We'll see how long that lasts. That is still not enough cord, but that's all I got. I think that's all that's there, Brian. Yep, I will move over a little bit. <laughs> well, every time I start talking about the good news of the gospel, uh, my mic dies. What's going on here? It's walking through Romans 3, looking at the sinfulness of man. There's no one who does good, not even one. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Moving to Romans 6, seeing the judgment of God. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes. I don't know why God has left me alive. I don't know why God has left me alive. I don't deserve to be here. Do you see it? It's the answer. It, it absolutely destroys that philosophical question. The problem with the question um, is not that it's hard to answer. It is, it is hard to answer in some ways. But the problem really is it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question altogether. To ask that question, why would a good God allow evil in this world, uh, is to start with some wrong questions. Assumptions to start from a wrong foundation. 
the right question is this. If God is all good and all powerful, why would he leave a sinner like me? Why would he allow a stain like me to continue to exist? If God is holy and righteousness, why am I as this filthy, wretched creature allowed to continue to mar his beautiful world? That's the right question. And that's the question that we're going to answer this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 uh, to 917. See, now I'm going to run out of hands. I'll I'll switch to this uh, cordless. How's that? Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20. And, And here we find God's covenant with Noah. And what we see here is it is a covenant of life. Covenant of life. You guys keeping up, kids? Let me, uh, let me read this passage. Genesis starting chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And your lifeblood, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah, to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast on the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have told us who you are. You have called us to yourself and made a way that we may come. God, I pray as we turn to your word this morning, would you be at work in our hearts? Uh, Lord, aside from all the distractions already, Lord, may it not take away from the truth of your word as we focus on you. May our uh, hard hearts be softened, our Dull ears be opened. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ more clearly today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a a foundational passage of Scripture that we come to. As I said last week, our God is a covenant-making God. That's who he is. Kids, do you know what a covenant is? Anybody know what a covenant is? Just shout it out if you have an idea. What's a covenant? Somebody know? It's not up there yet. Promise. Yes. Yeah, a covenant is like a promise between two people. So marriage is a covenant. Marriage is two people making this this solemn, special promise to one another to be faithful to each other. They both agree and they join in this covenant covenant together it's it's a promise throughout the bible god makes covenants these promises to his people and through these covenants we see who god is we see how god intends to operate in this world how he's going to to deal with us as humanity as his people it's not obvious when you first read it but god's first covenant is actually genesis 1 to 3 god first creates Adam and Eve. That covenant has two sides. There's God's part of the promise and there's Adam and Eve's part. God created Adam and Eve. He made them in His image. He blessed them and He gave them a job. Here's what you're supposed to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And rule the earth as God's representative. That's a big deal, being part of God's image. They're to rule in His place on the earth. Then there's God's part. This is what God would do. He put them into the Garden of Eden. He built this perfect garden. And and I think you can boil it down to three main points. God is promising in putting them in the Garden of Eden that He would provide. He gave them all the the food that they could want, all the the beauty and the, the bounty around them. God said, I'll provide for you. And He promised to give them peace. The garden was a safe place, protected. And then most significantly at all, he would give them his presence. God would be with them. God walked with them in the garden. So that's what God gave. That was his end of the deal. Now, how did Adam and Eve do? Did they uphold their end of the covenant? No, no, no. They did not do well. They decided 
before too long. We don't want God to be our boss. We don't want to be his representatives. We want to be our own bosses. We want to be like God. We want to make our own rules. And so they did exactly what God told them not to do. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the result is God said, then you have to leave the garden. You have to go. He sent them out, out from his provision, out from his peace, out from his presence. It's tragic. Sin then only increased in the world and multiplied. The world became more and more wicked until we come to this just crushing sentence. Listen to Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's rough. Think about that. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What did God do in response to that? One more time, kids. What did God do? He sent what? The flood. He sent the flood. He killed every man, woman, and child, the animals. He covered the earth with a flood. Every single person except Noah. God rescued Noah and his family. And we could ask the question, why? Why did God keep Noah and his family alive? The answer is is Genesis 6.18. I'm going to start at verse 17. This is what God says to Noah. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But, here's verse 18, but I will establish my covenant, my promise with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your wife's sons with you. God says, I'm going to destroy all of humanity, every living thing. I'm going to wipe it out because they're, they're wicked, they're evil. But, Noah, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. The word establish there um, doesn't mean to set up a new one. It means to uphold, to protect, to, to keep. God said, I'm not going to break my promise. I'm not done with that promise that I've made. I'm going to, I'm going to uphold that and I'm going to use you to do it, Noah. The word make a covenant, technically to to cut a covenant, is is not found anywhere in the story of Noah. He's keeping a covenant. And the covenant that he's keeping is the one that he made with Adam and Eve. God is still working out this plan to, to give a people his perfect provision and peace and presence. God always keeps his promises. And he's going to use Noah. He's going to use Noah to to keep that covenant promise alive. So God rescued Noah and his family, keeping them safe through the ark, through the flood. Now in chapter 8, as we come to our passage this morning, verse 20, we see Noah and his family, they're coming off of the ark into this new world. Beginning of chapter 8 is filled with, with echoes from the creation story. It's like God has kind of created, he's starting over. It's a new world. Noah's like a new Adam beginning again. And God is determined still to to bring the world back to this Garden of Eden-like state. But things are different now. Sin is in the picture. The world has been corrupted. It's not so easy to just kind of build a new garden because humanity has been infected with sin. You can imagine 
there's this uneasiness now, this concern. They've just got off of the ark. The world is still decimated by the flood. All of their friends, their co-workers from before are wiped out. And you can imagine Noah and his family thinking, is that going to happen again? Is this going to be a regular thing? If I sin against God, if I make a a wrong step, is is he just going to wipe it clean again? Will he just start over without us? If God is good and holy and just, then why would he allow sinners to continue on his world again? He already showed he doesn't have to. He already showed his wrath against sinners. Why wouldn't he do it again? And that's what God is establishing this, this covenant with Noah is all about first thing we see is this is a covenant of grace. This is a covenant of grace. Look again, chapter 8, starting in verse 20. Noah uh, builds an altar, and he sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord. And then uh, there's this really strange statement. Look at verse 21. This is a weird, weird verse. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And you expect him to say, because they're all better now, right? I will never again curse the ground because of men, because I killed all the sinful ones. No, what does he say? I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. That doesn't make sense doesn't make sense. This is so key. When you see verses like that that don't make sense, we've got we to gotta stop and figure out what's going on. This is actually the same language that's used in, in chapter 6. The Lord's saying the same thing. The intentions of his heart are still evil. He's still wicked. The ark saved Noah from the flood, but it couldn't save Noah from himself. It couldn't save Noah from himself. Noah is still a sinner. He's still a sinner. He still deserves God's wrath. But look at the difference. Chapter 6, we saw uh, the wickedness of man, and, and God is grieved in his heart, and God looks at the wickedness of man and decides to destroy all of humanity. And that made sense. Here the Lord sees the wickedness of man and decides never again to destroy all of humanity. Never again to strike down every living creature. Why? What's the difference? Mankind has not changed. Humanity that existed before the flood, humanity that existed after the flood, humanity that exists today. This is a description of us. The intentions of our hearts are evil. We're born with a sin nature. A sin nature. That matters. From from Adam onward, this this is us. The intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. David puts it this way, Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, I was born as an infant. And we were doing a Bible study years ago um, with some college and career. We had a, a young Muslim fellow that was coming. And, and he said, you mean to tell me that an infant baby, that cute, precious little child is sinful? <laughs> well, you haven't had kids yet. you just try you just withhold that bottle that baby would tear your arms off to get that bottle if it could it's self-centered 
He's sinful. You don't have to teach an infant to be selfish. You don't have to teach your child to, to lie or to covet or to hit his brother. We're born with this sinful nature. We call this depravity. We are sinful right at the root, right at the core of who we are. There's a lot of talk about free will and whether or not we have free will. And, and I think the, the question is easy to misunderstand. It's easy to think, well, of course I have free will. I do what I want. I see it every day. I, I choose to do things and I do them freely. But, but that's not actually where the problem is. You're free to, to choose to do whatever you want. The problem is you're not free to choose your wants. Do you see the difference? You can do whatever you desire, but you can't control your desires. It's the desires of the heart that are fallen. The problem is, is a step deeper than we often think of it. The problem is right at the root of the hearts, the intentions of the heart that are evil. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he defines that, verse 3, saying that we once lived this way. Listen to his description of being dead in your trespasses and sins. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We, we lived in the desires of their wicked heart. We did the things we wanted to do. That's exactly the problem. And it's a problem that we wanted them. And we were by nature children of wrath. You can't change your nature. You can't decide what to desire. It's like trying to take a, a lion and make him a herbivore. Now you can beat him and whip him and, and you might be able to get him to eat a head of lettuce. He might actually do it. I'm sure lions like other dogs and things might eat grass every now and then. But he can eat whatever he wants, right? He's the king of the jungle. So he can, sure, he can choose freely. He might choose to eat a vegetable, but that doesn't change his nature. He is a carnivore. We are corrupted from the heart. Our very nature is a sin-craving nature. Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can the Ethiopian, can the black man change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Answer, no. No, that's who he is. It's part of his nature. Then also, you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In our sinful nature, we have just as much ability to choose to be a good person as the leopard has to choose to not be a leopard anymore. That's who we are. We are sinful by nature and we deserve God's wrath. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Sin deserves God's wrath. Every single human being that descends from Adam, um, if you're a descendant of Adam, please put up your hand this morning. Hint, you are. There you go. We're descendants of Adam. Adam sinned and brought in this disease, this genetic disease in a sense of, of sin. It passes down. We're born in it. We deserve to be wiped out just like what God did in the flood. That would be the right thing for God to do. So what's the difference now? We're still asking this question, why did God not send another flood? And the answer, the difference, is grace. It's nothing but grace. We deserve it. That would be the right thing, but God is gracious. 
the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice. And then, even though humanity is still sinful, the Lord said that he would never again destroy every living thing. God's grace is shown in his accepting that sacrifice. That's grace. Right? We, we need to get this. Um, this wasn't Noah's gift for God. Noah wasn't doing something that God needed. If you read the other um, ancient accounts, the other flood stories, um, the gods hover around Utnapishtim like, like flies, hungry for the meal because they haven't been fed because they need the sacrifices. That's their food. Uh, Moses writing this out goes, no, no, no. God doesn't need anything, right? God wasn't hungry and it wasn't Noah's to give. The animals don't belong to Noah. These are, these are God's animals. It was a sacrifice. It was a burnt offering. Noah deserved death, and the animal died in his place. And if you're stopping and thinking, wait a second, that's not a fair exchange. An animal life for a human life, that doesn't actually add up. You're absolutely right. It doesn't. We get to the New Testament, we know. Hebrews says even the, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. It was never enough. It was never meant to be enough. All the animals that died, the tabernacle, the temple on Noah's altar, those sacrifices were never actually sufficient in themselves. They didn't actually deal with sin. You look ahead, the book of Ephesians 5.2. Notice the language that Paul uses he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering. That's what Jesus' death was. From the very beginning, the sacrifices of all the, the animals dying, these sinful people who deserved death could live. It was pointing forward to Jesus Right? They, were just, they were just placeholders. They were just a, a statement of faith in what God would do, trusting in the coming of Jesus. God allowed Noah to live because one day Jesus would die. That's grace. That's God. That, that, that's Him playing out His plan. God is keeping His promise by being gracious to know, and he's, he's pointing forward to how he's going to ultimately keep this promise to bring them back to a, a Garden of Eden-like state, rescuing for himself a people out from judgment and give them peace and provision and his presence. This is so fundamental. We, we've got to get this. We have to understand this. I, I can't overstate how significant this is. If, there is. if there's one thing that you have to believe to be able to call yourself a Christian, Right? One, one singular point of doctrine that you must understand, it's this. It's this right here. We are sinners. We deserve death. The only reason a sinner could escape God's judgment is if Jesus died in their place, paid the penalty that they deserved. Penal substitutionary atonement, just to put fancy words on it for you. That Jesus took the penalty. He's our substitution in our place. And he made atonement. He made it right. 
That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian, to recognize that I deserve death and hell for my sin, and I'm trusting that Jesus died in my place to purchase my forgiveness. There are so many who would call themselves Christians who have no idea what we're just talking about. It's terrifying. Let it not be true of us, church. This is the gospel. If you don't have that, you don't have Christianity. That's the core. And it's, and it's the working out of that plan, God's plan to rescue sinners out from death that causes him to say, if I'm going to do that, then I will never again judge the earth like I did in the flood. Because he's in the, in the process of, of rescuing his elect, he will allow this whole earth to continue. Because he's, he's working out this plan of salvation that's, that's leading to Christ, that's rescuing sinners from every tribe and language and nation and tongue, rescuing them out of his judgment, bringing them into this eternal place of perfect rest. Because of that plan of God to save some, God is being patient toward all. God is patient with a world that is saturated with sin. A world that deserves to be destroyed because he's rescuing some out of that world. That's the foundation of God's promise not to cleanse the world again by a flood. Um, Peter talks about this. He's writing in a day that's increasing in sin and rebellion. The church is being attacked and, and persecuted. Peter reminds them, Jesus is coming back. He's going to return and, and judge the wicked and save, rescue his own. He talks about the flood and how, how the, remember how God judged the world once with the flood? Well, he, that judgment is coming again. This time he's going to judge the world by fire. The world is being kept, he says, until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And their question for Peter is, okay, but when? How long? Why not now? It's been such a long time. Let's not forget, we've been a couple thousand years since then saying, okay, God, how long? When? We're waiting. Peter says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's common grace. Right? There's his particular grace, his saving grace on the cross. And there's his common grace to everybody. The Lord uh, lets his sun shine on the wicked and the just. His common grace, his patience with this world continues. He allows the wicked to carry on because he is waiting patiently until all those who will come are safely gathered in. It's grace. It's all grace. This is a covenant of grace. Secondly, it's a covenant of life. It's a covenant of life. Let's, let's get into chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. 
And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. And from every fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Here we come more specifically to the, the covenant itself, right? This, this thing with, with Noah and the sacrifice, that's kind of why of the covenant. This is the covenant. God is, is relaying the expectations. Here's the, here's the promise. Here's the sides. This is what it's about. And the Lord begins with Noah exactly as he began with Adam and Eve. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, fill the earth. That's God's blessing. Children are a gift from the Lord. Kids, can I get an amen? <laughs> Look at your dad. Say, Dad, I'm a gift. <laughs> you are. Our mandate from God on this earth is to reproduce, to have children, to have kids. We have the kids with us this morning. And it's a little noisier. It's a little bit more chaotic. It's a little bit harder for you to pay attention. It's tempting for you to say, you know what, maybe we could just stream it from home this Sunday and we can put the kids in their room and listen in peace and quiet. Now, kids are a blessing from the Lord. Even the chaos, even the interruptions, even the inconvenience, they're a gift. I want to be gentle here. We absolutely understand there are, there are numerous factors at play. And I want to be sensitive to that. We should not be judging people with no kids or fewer kids. There are many reasons why some families couldn't or shouldn't have children or more children. Let's, let's not fall into trying to make assumptions of the heart when we don't know the whole story. But this much is very clear, and I would press this. Rooted in this blessing and this mandate from God, our hearts ought to be bent toward children. That ought to be our desire, our delight. And, and, and toward more children rather than less. The question is, how many can we do well? How many do we think we can handle? How many can we raise? It's a beautiful thing that our parking lot is filled with minivans, even a couple of full-size vans. Huh. Real men drive minivans, Right? Real men drive full-size vans. We get it, Joel. You God is a God of life. God is a God of life. And God is laying out again the, the parameters of this covenant. Our, our first responsibility, our end of the bargain is be fruitful and multiply. Men, have kids, boys. Think about, what do I need to do to be a father? How do I get there? What kind of job do I need to have to be able to, to find a wife and support a family? Girls, that's a beautiful thing. That's number one. I, I get to grow up and be a mother and, and a wife and to raise a family. God loves that and God calls us to love that. We should treasure that. Our world puts that aside. Go have your career. Go do your thing in the world. Go make something of yourselves. Have children. Have a family. Now again, 
God has different callings on different people and, and, and that, that desire doesn't always come to fruition. That's part of this broken world that we live in, but that ought to be the bent of our hearts. God is a God of life. And yet, the situation has changed, right? We're, we're no longer in this perfect utopia. We're no longer in the garden. Things aren't as they should be. And so this, this covenant needs some new requirements. We need some new guardrails here because this is a new scenario. And so there's this, there's this positive can, command, be, be fruitful and, and multiply. And then there's two negative commands. There's two do not commands. Do not eat blood and do not murder. So first, um, do not eat blood. We're commanded to respect animal life, to respect animal life. The Lord puts the fear of man into animals. And, and, and though they were always to rule over the, the, the creation, over the animal world, um, this is, is one of my favorite verses, jokingly. They shall be food for you. God gave us meat. Can I get an amen to that? He gave us animals for food. Vegetarianism is not a biblical principle. You might have other reasons why you only eat what food eats, and that's okay. Um, but God said we could have meat, so I'm going to enjoy my steak to the glory of God. By the way, yeah, we were created in the garden, vegetarians, but it, the meat doesn't go away. There, there's the finest of meats in heaven, so um, it's not going anywhere. But God says, have meat. But this is the point of the negative command. Not the blood. You shall not eat the blood. Verse 4. Um, not eat the, the flesh with its life. That is its blood. God is saying, you can eat the meat, but you need to realize that life belongs to God. Life belongs to God. Now, I get a lot of flack over this. Um, because my personal preference for the cooking of steak uh, is as little as possible. And, and I mean that. Um, you you want to just kill the bacteria on the outside, leave the inside cool and tender and juicy as God intended it to be. Uh, and, and people in the past, some jokingly, some not so much, uh, have said, how can you do that? Look at all the blood. God said, don't eat blood. That's not what this is about. Um, Leviticus Deuteronomy will go on to explain, when you kill an animal, you drain the blood from its veins. In the butchering process, you, you, you drain the lifeblood. Other religions um, would capture the blood, drink the blood, take the, the heart of the animal still filled with blood and eat it raw, trying to absorb the power of life for themselves. Uh, God says, no. No, you don't eat the blood because life belongs to me. This covenant, by the way, is still in effect. Last I checked, we still have uh, days and nights and, and seasons. Um, we're still under this covenant with God. That's why in Acts 15, as the apostles are wrestling over what laws should the Gentile believers follow, should they, should they come under the Mosaic law, they say, no, no, they don't need to be circumcised, they don't need to follow those laws, but they shouldn't eat blood because this covenant is here. Blood is symbolic uh, of the life of the animal. Later, the, the blood would be used in the sacrificial system, would be sprinkled on the altar, would be sprinkled on the people. The blood of Jesus poured out on the cross, the symbol of his life. You're not to eat the life blood because life belongs to God. 
They were to respect animal life. Much more than that, though, they were to respect human life. You cannot take the life of another person. For human life, God says three times he will require a reckoning. There's consequences. Verse 6, he makes those consequences explicitly clear. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is the death penalty for murder. God says this is how much you are to value life. And the reason is significant because God made man in his own image. And so even after the fall, after sin and the corruption of that, we are still the image of God. That still is part of who we are. That's our identity. Even after the fall. So human life is not just uh, of value. Human life is holy. Human life is holy. So to kill a person, to take a human life, is an attack against God. Because it's the image of God. People often get this backwards. They'll say, no, no, I have too much value in the human life. I respect human life too greatly in order to do the death penalty. I can't, I can't stand for that because I value human life too much. God disagrees. God says, no, the value of human life is so great that if someone takes a human life, their life must be forfeit. That's how God says this ought to work. Now, we find here as well, um, probably the, the roots of the system of government. It does not say by a man shall his blood be shed. God's not saying revenge killing. He's not saying someone killed your brother, you get to go after them. But rather by man, by mankind, by society, this punishment is to be carried out. Verse 7, the Lord gets back to the point. Verse 7 begins, and you. I think it would be better translated, but you. Other people um, are going to drink animal blood. Other people are going to murder one another, and, and that should be punished. But, but you, you on the other hand, be fruitful and multiply. He, he doesn't want us to miss the point here. Protect life in order to produce life. That's the heart of what God demands of humanity. Just, just live and, and produce and don't kill each other. right? I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. Literally, um, those are the words that I say to my, my 10 and 12-year-old when I leave them alone in the house. right? Just, just don't kill each other. And, and I thought that was a pretty low bar even for them. And, and yet, we look around. We live in a culture of death. We live in a culture of death. 11,900 babies were aborted last year in Alberta. 11,900. That's one abortion for every 365 people in Alberta last year. It's tragic. Assisted suicide is readily available, even encouraged. Not, not just to the extremely elderly or the, the terminally ill. Not that that would be okay, but, it, but it's encouraged even to young, healthy people who, who just for one reason or another don't want to continue living, have no value in life. But your life is not your own. It's God's. We are not the givers and takers of life. It's tragic. It's abhorrent. 
It goes directly against the most basic, fundamental mandate of, 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 of what we have as the human race. I was so blessed this last week to see how many of our people came out to the, the, the fundraiser for the Pregnancy Care Center and, and were involved there. So many people in general from our community. What, what an important ministry in our day and age. Um, if you've not connected with them, I would encourage you. Um, that is a fantastic ministry happening there. Coming alongside young girls. Giving an option other than abortion. Holding up the sanctity of life. This isn't a new thing. You can look back at the Nazis killing the Jews, the Hutus killing the Tutsis, the the followers of Molech sacrificing their children in the fire. This rebellion is our legacy. This wickedness, it's who we are as sinners. This is the world that God is patiently allowing to continue. It's easy to get overwhelmed especially in our day and age of, of internet news and, and social media and YouTube, all of a sudden you can see every problem in this world from anywhere in the world up close and personal in, in full video. And we start to wonder, what do we do with all of this? How do I respond to, to 10,000 abhorrent things coming across my screen? Maybe, just maybe, social media isn't always the most helpful thing. We get worked up over incidents in the States or in Ottawa or on the other side of the world. And, and it would be right to be bothered by some of those things. But have you stopped to just get to know your neighbors? To see the pregnant young mother on the block? To care for the elderly widow who lives down the street? Gently and with winsome graciousness engaging conversations in the workplace? Just pointing people to Christ. Pointing people toward the author and giver, not only of physical life, but eternal life. That's where we've got to start. That's your mission field. God has put you in your circles and spheres on purpose and gifted you to deal with that. Maybe not everything you see on Facebook and YouTube, but certainly with the people around you. And we shouldn't be shocked. We just should not be shocked as this world continues on in rebellion against God. He's still on his throne and he is patiently, graciously waiting. This covenant is a covenant of grace and it's a covenant of life. And finally, unfortunately, it's a covenant of promise. It's a promise. Look at um, chapter 8, verse 9. This, the, this last section here. Let me read it for us again so it's fresh in our minds. Then God said to Noah, to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds of the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, 
I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living thing, uh, every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God is saying this, this covenant, this is a covenant of promise. And the first thing we see is the, the surety of this covenant. Kids, that might be an odd word for you. Um, surety means it's sure. It's guaranteed. This verse begins and ends, this passage begins and ends the same way. Verse 9 says, I will establish my covenant. Verse 17 repeats, this is the, the sign of the covenant that I will establish. Verse 11, I have established my covenant God will do it. He will. This covenant doesn't depend on us as the world continues off in rebellion and chaos. God's promise doesn't change. It's not a maybe. It's not a probably. It's a promise. Secondly, then, we see the subjects of the covenant. Who are the people involved? To whom is God making this particular covenant Well, it says here that it is Noah and Noah's sons and their offspring into the future. More than that, verse 10, every living creature that is with you, so Noah and his sons and all the living creatures, and then he goes even further, verse 12, with every living creature that is with you for all future generations. It's a big deal. It's a promise God has made to us, to our kids and their kids and their kids' kids. God makes this covenant with all of humanity, with all of creation, um, into the future. God's promise is for the whole world. With the whole world, he has promised never again to judge by a flood. He would never again wipe out humanity by water. That's the the surety of this covenant, the confidence of it, the, the subjects of this covenant. And then finally, we see the sign of the covenant, the sign of the covenant. Just like a wedding ceremony, the bride and groom, they they make their promises, they make their vows to one another, and then they they make this promise and they seal it with a sign. They they symbolize their covenant. Kids, what is the symbol of of a wedding covenant? What is it? What's the symbol of a marriage? Yeah, a wedding ring. They they exchange rings. This ring is a symbol of my promise so that every time the husband looks down and sees his wedding ring, he goes, oh yeah, I have a wife to love and to cherish and to to serve and to lead. Every time the wife looks down at her wedding ring, she says, oh, I have a husband to follow, support, to encourage, to love. Well, the sign of this promise, the symbol of this covenant is what? Shout it out. A rainbow. It's the rainbow. God says, I've set my bow in the clouds. Now, I think this is really cool. There is no word for rainbow in Hebrew. No such word. Okay? The word that God is using here is his bow, like bow and arrow. This is his, this is his weapon of war. That's what God is saying. I attacked with my bow and arrow and I wiped out humanity. Now I'm taking my bow and I'm hanging it up. 
hanging it up. He puts it in the clouds. And, and it's interesting, when we, we always say, when you see the rainbow, you can remember God's promise. That's not actually what God says here. Do you notice that? Much more significant, he says, when I see the rainbow, I will remember. Right? It's kind of, it's nice for me to remember God's promise. Um, what I really want is for God to remember God's promise. That's what's really important. Verse 17, God summarizes the whole thing again. God said to Noah, this is the sign the rainbow of the covenant that I will establish. It's, it's sure, it's guaranteed between me and all the flesh on the earth. Every gathering storm, every pouring rain, every time a rainbow can be seen across the sky, we're reminded of God's promise. We're reminded that God remembers His promise. It's God's enduring grace, His patience with this world. Reminded that God is still working out his plan, even in the mess, even in the brokenness. He's not going to flood the world again. But the promise of the rainbow, it's still kind of an eerie promise. Because even though it is a promise that God will not judge the world by a flood, the rainbow also reminds us the world still deserves to be judged. Every person walking on earth rightly deserves God's wrath. And even though that wrath will not come in the form of a flood, the rainbow still reminds us God's final judgment is still coming. God's final judgment is still coming. He will judge the earth in the end. His his wrath is held off. It's suspended. It's waiting until the proper time, but it will not wait forever. That day when God flooded the earth, that was a terrible, terrible day. A day of death and destruction. But the day that is coming will be infinitely worse. On that day, every sinner in rebellion against God will get exactly what they deserve. They will get infinite wrath. They will get the judgment of God. Remember, the reason that hasn't come yet, the reason that God still allows the wicked of this world to breathe His air is that He is patient and gracious, holding out the offer of salvation. Saying, why? Why would you perish? Why would you die? Come. Come to me. For even the most wretched of sinners to come to Jesus, to come in repentance and faith, to come and be forgiven. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who trust in Jesus will be like Noah, hidden inside the ark, fully sheltered from the storm of God's wrath. They will be brought through to the new creation. The new heavens, the new earth, the new garden of Eden with God's perfect provision and peace and presence and and the the flood could save, the, the ark could save Noah from the flood, but it couldn't save him from himself. Christ saves us from himself. God promised, I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. Jesus said, you need to be born again. 
Paul wrote, the, the old is gone, the new has come. We're made alive in Christ Jesus. And when he returns, that sin will be completely done away with. We will be glorified and made new. And so we will enter into this new creation, this new garden of Eden with new bodies, new hearts to follow him, bent to obedience to him, a new nature fully and completely into infinite joy. Are you ready for that day? Kids, are you ready for that day? It's coming. We don't know when, but it's coming. Don't wait. Don't presume upon the patience of God. I'll go, I'll go do my thing a little bit longer, and, and I'm sure I can still get repentance in before judgment comes. It's exactly what the people of Noah's day thought, some of them. They were going about their days, eating and drinking and celebrating weddings and having a good time, and the floodwaters rushed in. And that was it. Today is the day of salvation, and tomorrow is coming. Run to Christ today. Trust in Him today. Call out to Him for mercy and grace today. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Are you ready for that day? And are those around you ready for that day? Are those around you ready? Have you warned them? Have you told them? God's wrath is hanging over this world and one day it will come crashing down. And there's an ark. There's a savior. There's a rescue. Our friends, our co-workers, do they know? Again, today is the day of salvation. We're called to be messengers of that grace. We should be about that business with desperate urgency. Every time we see that rainbow in the sky, remember that it's God's grace that is being patient with this wicked world and that His judgment is coming and that He has sent a Savior and that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your grace.